My own common sense is the best evaluator of truth. That's a fairly logical statement. Don't you think? I'm guessing most of us would agree with this. All kinds of people claim to know things, but as they claim that they give, grow, both in stature and in relevance to our lives, we grow more skeptical unless those claims are corroborated by common sense, right? Our common senses. This is why we often have to say, i got to see it to believe it. I've been reading a couple books recently about the human mind, which consists of billions of neurons and these cells called glia, each of which, each cell in our mind is as complicated as a metropolitan city. One of the books I've read is called uh, Incognito, The Secret Life of the Brain, by a guy named David Eagleman. And uh, his basic thesis in this book is, is that you are hardly in control of what you do think and feel. Freud would call this phenomena the this main controlling force of our brains, the unconscious. Uh, famous psychologist Carl Jung said, in each of us there is another whom we do not know. And of course, the philosophers, Pink Floyd, uh, they said there is someone in my head, but it's not me. Right? Now that could have been because of other things of, <laughs> at play besides <laughs> the unconscious. But, you know, a major reason for this is because our five senses are not as reliable as we'd like to think. Uh, they're extremely limited in what they communicate to the brain, especially the one upon which we rely the most, sight. As Eagleman, what he does in sight, in talking about in this book, is he runs you through all these tests, these sort of sight tests, and what you realize is there's a lot of phenomena that you miss and just looking and focusing on something. And the magic industry has capitalized on this, right? That they, it's built on the knowledge that even if you are looking at something, you will not see the full picture of what's actually there. Like sleight of hand. We see this in art as well with different images and how people do, use shading to create a perception that something is there or that is three-dimensional when it is in fact not. Simple example of this is a basic cube. I'm going to put it here up on the screen. Now I want you to direct your eyes to the very top right-hand corner of the cube, right, where the two lines meet, very top right-hand corner. Now if you look the very top right-hand corner, that part of the cube becomes the face, right? But if you switch for a minute, maybe just look away for a minute, shake your eyes, go to the very bottom left-hand corner, Right, where the points intersect. What happens? This part, right, the bottom left hand, becomes the face of the cube. Now, nothing is actually changed on the screen, right? Physically speaking, nothing is actually changed. So the change must be taking place where? In our minds. Another scientific publication I, I read quoted dozens of studies that concluded when you focus on an object, more impulses are moving from your brain forward than there are impulses moving from your eyes backward. In other words, your brain is largely telling you what to see. It's filling in information. 
sometimes it isn't actually there. This is just, I, this stuff's fascinating to me. I, I'm no scientist. I'm not, you know, most of you know, I'm not really even that smart. But I, I, it's just fascinating to me that our common senses are so limited in filtering what's real. And because of that, you and I would be unwise to trust those senses as our most objective measure of truth. We need to find something more reliable. Because guess what? It's more than the magic industry now that's caught on to this phenomenon. Right? We hear it in rhetoric all the time. People do studies on what we will catch and what we will miss. They want us to catch the right things and miss the right things all the time. So, objective truth is needed. So, I present to you the Bible. Right? Uh, which itself calls the mind confused, Deuteronomy 28, anxious, closed, Job 17. Because each day, week, year comes crucial moments in your life when common sense will try, often successfully, to convince you about something, even though a number of those times, Scripture will paint an entirely different picture. And then it comes a fight. Am I going to believe what's in here Man, I, I just, I really just see something happening. I, I got to be true. You know what I'm talking about? We're going to look at truths from an entire book of the Bible over the coming weeks and months, called the Book of Colossians. Now, just the idea of reading through a first-century book may seem irrelevant for our 21st-century lives. So why do we read and teach through the Bible? Why do we read and teach through the Bible? Because an objective standard of truth not only interprets, helps us make sense of experience that our brains do accurately notice, but it can help fight off deception that would otherwise seem like common sense. That's how we read through the Bible. This fight off deception that would otherwise seem like common sense. And that's what, exactly what happens to this church in Colossae around 60 to 65 A.D. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes truth to them. Eternal, unchanging, objective truth to help them fight off deception that would otherwise make some sense in terms of how they're perceiving it. So before I jump into sordid tales of lies and deception, which is why I know you all came. Let me first tell you a little bit about this letter, all right? A guy named Paul, who writes this letter, he was regarded as one of the brightest men in the world. He hated Christians, based largely out of his own ignorance. But then God clears up these misconceptions, and Paul trusts his life to Jesus. Miraculously, God clears up his misconceptions on the road to Damascus. Paul trusts his life to Jesus, and he spends time learning about this man called Christ. In fact, he takes about three years. The Bible doesn't talk about it. It makes a brief point in, in Galatians that he took about three years between the time he trusts Christ and the time he goes out and tells others about Jesus. It's kind of like he went to seminary. All right? And he goes out after this time anywhere suffers anything to tell people that God, through Jesus Christ, freely offers to forever save 
your life from death. And the only requirement to obtain this free offer is to trust Christ. Along the way, Paul finds one place in particular where people are especially hungry for this message, for truth, objective, that could save them. That place is the place called Ephesus. Paul spends three years there. And what we think happened is that this guy named Epaphras traveled to Ephesus from Colossae, where he's from, and to hear this message. Epaphras trusted that Jesus is, in fact, God, after hearing this message, and he forever, God forever forgives this big no, this big stubborn no in his heart called sin. And having believed this, he returns to Colossae to start spreading the news. And as more and more people believed the message and trusted Jesus, a church formed, which Epaphras helped to lead. And he would travel intermittently back to Paul to both receive more instruction and just to grow as a leader. And so Paul hears along the way about the church. They praise for the young church as well. So, a little bit about Colossae. Anyone ever been to Colossae? Throw it out there. No one at all. All right. Uh, it's still there, still around. Uh, back in the day, Colossae was situated on this prominent river. It's kind of an estuary of the river uh, Meander, from which we get the word meander. Very, uh, lots of rivers intertwining. And uh, it was famous for wool, all right? Famous for wool, which was dyed a dark red color, which became known in the ancient world as Colossian. So they had their own color. Kind of what they were famous for, all right? So uh, Colossae then shrunk in size, in prominence, uh, even in population, due mostly to a natural disaster. All right, think, think in terms of Ivan here. But in this case, it was an earthquake, shaking the entire region just a few years before Paul writes this. The one scholar calls Colossae the least important city uh, to which Paul writes. All right, mostly due to its size. But while small, it was remarkably cosmopolitan, remarkably diverse. You had these Phrygian and Greek settlers combined with about 2,000 Jews brought in by Antiochus III back in the 2nd century. Uh, Antiochus was a Greek uh, king, leader. He was very harsh, oppressive towards the Jews, uh, and, and he shipped these Jews off to this place. So you had this sort of melting pot going on, and think about this. Natural disaster, small, you have remarkable cultural diversity, what does that sound like? Huh? Come on. Hey, Amen. All right. Someone said Barbados. Come on. Really? Uh, it, but amidst this diversity, amidst this diversity came also a diversity of truth claims, of uh, what were really false truths that seemed to make sense but were in fact false. And this wasn't like some complex system of philosophy. You know, we weren't dealing with like Marxism here, or social Darwinism, deconstructionism, you know, things that most of us don't know and can barely probably say. I can hardly say it myself. 
But instead, you had this potent collection of what were basically motivational sayings and sort of broad spiritual advice. But it was deceiving Christians nonetheless. The backdrop of this letter, I think, actually has three levels or degrees of deception at which we're going to look because the progression from one degree to, to another is something we can definitely relate to. Three degrees of deception. But Paul combats each degree of deception with a potent antidote. Learning Christ, core beliefs, what we believe, truly believe about Jesus. So learning Christ, loving Christ, what, what you learn, what you believe about Christ affects the priorities you set in life and, and what you cherish and value in living Christ because what you prioritize and what you cherish, what you love, affects then how you live. That's actually how Paul organizes this letter. Starting with learning Christ, then loving Christ, then living Christ. We're going to look at it. So let's start to read it. Shall we? Turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read the very beginning and actually the very end of this letter today in this brave attempt to combine two sermons into one. (laughs) All right. Colossians 1. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read the very beginning again, the very end of the letter. I'll give you some directions as we go along here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, Paul at this point likely had a very poor eye condition, other data we have in the New Testament, and and he had what was called an immensus. It was basically someone who was hired or or volunteers to write something for you. Uh, so that's Timothy. That's why he introduces Timothy here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and it's growing as it also grows among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. There comes Epaphras. There he is. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then turn with me a couple pages there. To verse 16 of chapter 4. Very end of this letter. Paul says this, And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. That was a city somewhat nearby. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He's right in the end. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. God's word. Now, I want to ask you a question. That if you're new in church, it might seem pretty natural to ask. But if you've been around, the content of this question is pretty much second nature. 
and that is why sermons? Like, why does learning, living, loving Christ need to be communicated through sermons for the next weeks and months? Ever thought about this? Like, why do we do sermons? Because although I love preaching and teaching, I really do, I, even more than you love listening to it. <laughs> slightly. Slightly. But after six, six or seven times, sometimes eight weeks in a row, I start to wonder the same thing. Why sermons, right? And consider the alternatives. Personal Bible study. An option, for sure. It's something we should be doing anyway. Uh, Christian TV shows, videos, podcasts. It's a clever way of switching around podcasts. A small group study. All right, or, or just Bible reading as a musical. Really, I don't ask this question much. I don't talk about what I do much. And, and Paul gives us the occasion here to ask, why sermons? And I'll show you why he gives us that occasion in a second. Why sermons? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us so. Explicitly commends public preaching as a crucial means for responding to grace, this free gift that Jesus offers and to grow in it. Uh, Romans 10, 14, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, Acts 20, 2 Timothy 4, 2 are just some of the places Scripture tells us this. But Paul actually hints at three reasons here in Colossians as well. All right, so we're going to talk about two of these briefly. Why do we do these sermons? It's a good question. We only have time for two reasons. Number one, reintroduce hearing and thinking to a generation of seeing and cataloging. Three times in the first eight verses here, we hear Paul say, heard. Akuo, which is basically the Greek word from which we get acoustics. That's kind of cool. There's a nice connection. And we hear this three times just in these verses, and we hear it again, Paul mentions it later in chapter 1, in reference to this idea of it's important to hear the word together. In 1437, 1437 changed the way humanity digested information. Right, that was the year that a guy named Gutenberg invented movable type. And in a short period of time, humans went from learning almost exclusively audibly, through, through listening and through dialoguing, to be able to access information rapidly and with complete autonomy, right? Through print. And before I say anything else, don't get me wrong, I, I heart books. I probably spent like $2,000 just getting books down here that I own in the United States, which is absolutely ridiculous. But uh, I want us to notice, too, the downsides as well when we learn almost exclusively visually. And I tend to be a visual learner. I'm, I've certainly been trained in that, and most of us have been. What happens is, number one, learning becomes increasingly privatized. All right, so you get a few books, and then you get more copies of different kinds of books, and then you get a shift to newspapers in which you pick and choose from even a wider variety of info. Then you have this thing called the Internet and blogs in which pretty much anyone can give you information, right? You get the idea. Quicker, easier, more kinds of information, you get to choose. With visual learning and reading, you choose what you want to read, when you want to read it, and how much attention you're going to pay to it. Because right, some things you just browse, look for the headlines, but you're in control. 
Whereas in hearing and listening, man, you're at, <laughs> you know this, you're at the speaker's mercy. Right? Another person initiates. In that way, there's more interaction because you're forced to kind of keep up. And frankly, it's more demanding emotionally. Why do I say that? The classic example of this is the husband historically bearing his face to the newspaper at breakfast rather than listening necessarily to the rest of his family. Why? You're in control. You're getting information the way you want, how you want it, which is important early in the morning. Another thing that happens when we learn this way exclusively, quicker access to learning leads to cataloging information. I'll tell you what I mean by this. As anyone has information to anything at any time, learning becomes more competitive in nature. Right? Anyone can get information now. So instead of receiving information, mulling it over, uh, chewing on it, talking about it with others, we catalog it away and move on to the next piece of information. We almost feel like we have to do that. We've been trained to do this. Right? School, technically speaking, school is becoming, uh, it's like a misnaming. Uh, the Greek skole, school, uh, literally meant leisure. You know that? I didn't realize that. It means leisure. Uh, named such because Greeks invented it as a protected time and space allocated from the cultivation of interpersonal relationships in which learning, conversation, even games could take place. We pretty much lost all of that, right, in schooling today. I mean, it's, you read facts, you catalog, catalog it for testing, and then you move on. Right? And then, then teachers are evaluated based on how the testing goes. You realize this. One of my favorite things today, my favorite things about going to church is the time I get during a sermon to listen and think. I know I'm, gonna, I'm about to defeat myself in saying this, but uh, you know, when a pastor has said something or read something that makes me think, you know, while he keeps going on speaking, that gives me time to think for a minute or two. And yes, I recognize that you know, I don't keep your rapt attention for 30 or 40 straight minutes. And I'm saying, that's, that's actually very, that's totally cool. That's okay. It's, it's okay to think and wander in thought to what someone says to chew on it. Some of you are you're just coming back from wandering right now. Right? As I focus my attention on you, yes, what? Wandering. I'm wandering. What's the temperature in here? Right, you know, I mean, it, we want to wander on God's word, ideally, but, but I recognize this. In a way, a sermon kind of forces us, right? It forces you into this little space of time that you may never enter on your own, right? So you can listen, ponder, think, and have what otherwise might be just be cataloged information be planted deep inside you. Isn't that kind of a cool thing about that? And we think about, it like, you know, sure, it kind of forces us to do that. It's a discipline. Once you get in it, Kind of nice to have that space that we don't take otherwise. So reason number two for sermons is it's written to grow a church primarily and not an individual exclusively. Turn, so read with me then in Colossians 4.16. We just read it, but I want to read it again. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. From this other and see also uh, that you read the letter from Laodicea. So we had this remarkable time when the church community came together and read the same thing. 
and I'm so grateful that today we have all these tools, these quick access tools and study guides to help us read through the Bible and get to know God on our own. But I just want us to recognize the downsides also, because you can imagine the scene back here in Colossae when, when people listen and consider primarily together. And there would be this sort of lingering after church where the people would ask questions and they would point and reference another letter together. Like, what about this letter? And like the one from Laodicea and what it says. And there's this learning and growing that happens together as a whole community. And that's one of the great things about a sermon is that every Sunday we have Christ manifested through his word in common. Real wisdom to discuss with our spouse, our kids, our friends, because we're chewing on the same meal. One commentator points out that this verse indicates that because New Testament letters like this were written in the Greek of plumbers, there are two different kinds of Greek. There's the Greek for plumbers and the Greek for scholars. The New Testament is written in the Greek for plumbers. Isn't that awesome? It means that it could, be, it could be read privately by ordinary people, but instead Paul instructs for them to be read, for this to be read publicly, communally, as Archippus, the teacher, ministers and applies it to their lives. That's why we see this little connection, look in verse 17. Right, where Paul says, and, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you've received from the Lord. It's almost certainly referring to this teaching ministry because we're reading this stuff together and, and teaching it together. So, I'm going point this morning. Uh, what are some ways we can arrive ready to hear and respond to learning, loving, and living Christ? When you come on a Sunday morning, what are some ways you can do this practically? First, remove the greatest obstacle to hearing. Sin. That, that, as I mentioned before, that big, stubborn no in your heart that wants things its own way. We all sense it. We've known it from birth. Sin. Confess it. Admit it to God that it's there. And ask for forgiveness before you walk through those doors. Because what happens is sin clouds our mind, clouds our judgment. You know this, right? So, so for instance, if you, if you walk in and you're already starting to think of all the other people to whom this sermon applies, right, you, your, your judgment might be clouded, right? If you're wishing you had a different pastor who was preaching better and about something different, you know, I mean, it, it, it could be a problem. Or, or the songs that someone chose aren't your preference, you know, we gotta, it's a problem. It's an obstacle to our receiving and listening to what God has to say to us. Confess it. Get it off your chest. Number two, remove the second greatest obstacle to hearing. Irritation with the speaker. All right, now, I debated mentioning this this morning because I don't want to come across like, oh, Pastor Ryan wants everyone to like him. I, 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 I realize that's, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but, but I just know this, in all sincerity, I know this. If there's something between you and me, it will hinder hearing God's word each week. And that is sad. And that's why I, I don't want that to happen. Nothing else, just hearing God's word. And so I want to encourage you, do one of two, if this is you, I know I have an annoying voice, I can't do anything about that. All right, I hate my voice, you know, I hate hearing on the voicemail, I can't do anything about that. But if there's irritation between you and me, do one of two things in this order. One, the Bible says you can overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 talks about this, that it's to a person's glory to overlook an offense. So these come in all kinds of ways, right? It can be a real sin I've committed against you. It could also just be like a word I've used. We all have these hot-button words, right? 
Oh, man, he said that. Ooh, that, I don't like that. Like, mine is loyalty. When a speaker says and sort of prizes loyalty, it bothers me because I've had experiences where people talked about how loyalty is a great trait, but a lot of leaders use loyalty to manipulate people, right? And so whenever I hear a speaker say loyalty, I'm like, oh, use faithfulness. You know, and it bothers me, and I just got to get over it. All right, overlook an offense. Uh, number two, come and speak with me. If it's something that you're having a hard time just getting over, please come and speak with me. Matthew 5, 23 talks about leaving worship behind to go and be reconciled with your brother. Now, I'm going to encourage you not to do that during a sermon. All right, because that just gets awkward. You know, I'd have to mic you up, too. We have to do it in front of everyone, so uh, we don't want to do that. But, but at some point, come to me, please. I, I really want you to do that. Um, James 3.1 says this about people who teach. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So when I go to the throne of God, I'm going to be judged more harshly because I teach and am called to do so. Now, I will be judged more strictly, yes, because I'm responsible for getting it right for God. And yes, because as a pastor teacher, I'm a public example for others. But also, I think it's because if I sin against you and leave you hurt without approaching you and asking forgiveness. If there's no reconciliation, every Sunday becomes a Herculean effort for you to listen to the Word of God. That's a problem. Number three, there's something practical you can do to get ready to hear. Is stop being biased to your Jesus Speaks to Me preferences. All right, now this, one, this one may hurt a little, but uh, try to receive it. Some of us are word people, and some of us are quote-unquote worship people. Now, this is for those of you who are, are Christians and been in the church, you're word people or worship people, but there's no distinction in Scripture where God's people listen to his word and respond in worship, both with their lives and with their singing. And then in that space of time and worship, there's more speaking of God to human beings. No distinction here. In fact, Colossians 3.16, which we'll look at, of course, later in this series, but worth looking at now, too, says this. uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. All right, so we have this idea of teaching, learning God's word together, growing together, and then look what happens. Link to that responding, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Thankfulness in your heart towards God. So these two are, they're linked together. There's no separation. That's the embodiment of why we gather, to listen. God's word dwells in us richly. And we sing to one another. All right? I don't know if you actually turn to your neighbor and sing. You should try that sometime. It would be an interesting experiment. Right? But we sing to one another and to God. And God continues to speak. Now, if you say, well, you know, God really speaks to me through the preached word. Man, or, or just... God really speaks to me through worship. No. He, he actually keeps speaking. But sometimes we've just stopped listening. He does speak to you through those things, but then he continues. But through our culture's cult of individual personalities that is pressed into us, I think often we've told ourselves so many times when and how God will speak that you've convinced yourself out of listening other times and through other means. Something to think about. Be open to listening throughout the time. Finally, number four, 
find a way to become a more active listener. Find ways to become a more active listener. Now, uh, you may have heard this before. An average person talks at a rate of 125 to 175 words per minute. While we can listen, though, listen to this, at a rate of 450 words per minute. The problem is we operate at about one-eighth our capacity. And I assume that's because we're not drinking enough coffee, right? We need more. Need more. And, and seriously, if that's what you need, come early. Drink our coffee. I mean, that's what you got to do. Now, it might also be you need rest on Saturday night. I'll, I'll throw that idea out there as well. Uh, taking notes. Note-taking increases the absorption capacity of information by 15 to 40%, depending on the person. Maybe you challenge yourself to come up with a question that you and your wife can discuss, you and your spouse or you and your husband can discuss on the way home. And you just challenge yourself. I'm going to come up with a question to discuss from this sermon. Uh, read the passage ahead of time. You can actually see what's coming up on the sermon page of our website. But I want you to pray with me that God will prepare us, those on our aisles, those whom we're going to invite, hear, chew on, think, digest God's word that we might learn, love, and live Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, excited to get into this book of Colossians, your objective truth. Father, it truth of the matter is we miss so much, even with our basic senses, Lord, of what is really true. What is really going on as we interpret things in the world around us, we often, Lord, and I know I often get it wrong. Thank you for giving us your word, which tells us, which challenges us, which we can hold on to when other things try to deceive us, other people, other messages try to deceive us. Thank you for this objective measure of truth. God, just prepare us to listen to it. Prepare our hearts, even when we come on Sunday mornings, to be encouraged by it. Lord, help us take some steps that we need to do to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.